0: Hello and welcome to the British English podcast, the the show that helps you learn British English and British culture, but also other cultures. But today it's definitely about English culture and it's a history one. We have Ben Marks, the historian that lives down under, back with us to complete the mini series on the Great English Country Houses. Hello, Ben. How are you doing?
1: Good, Charlie. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm well.
1: We're back. Uh, A third time, pardon me. No, well, I'm back in the room for a second time. Oh, I see. We initially tried to sit down and do this all in one go, but it ended up being uh, two hours for the first two parts. So we'll do the conclusion today. And And it, um, it makes sense that it's the downfall. Yes. That we come back for. Yeah. Yeah, we set it up did the setup it's like a story yeah we did the setup set the scene got all the main characters involved then we played out the the main sort of story we talked about the servants and their quarters and the people who lived upstairs and how it all worked and now we're here for downfall the conclusion of the story so to speak exactly very cinematic
0: yeah where do you feel like we need to focus our attention throughout this episode
1: okay so basically we're going to look at the reason for the end of these this sort of country house lifestyle and the way that these uh, aristocrats used to live. There are a couple of reasons for that. I mean, the fundamental reason is economic. There are some smaller, less important social causes for this. But uh, yeah, we'll look at the economic causes for the end of this era. Nice. Uh, and just to recap, basically this era was at its peak, 1700s, 1800s. At the very end of the 1800s and early 19th century, we started to see the decline and then the eventual end of this lifestyle.
0: Yeah, and being that it was such a long period of time, it's affected culture that we know of today,
1: right? We did go into that uh, last two episodes, so if any uh, keen listeners are on this third one first, go back to the first two. We uh, imparted some very interesting information. Yes, we did. We even included how Henry VIII died. Remember that one? I think so. Do, Do remind me. Well, uh,
0: not how he died, but when he died, his body blew up to the point where it swelled in the coffin because it was—he was a large man—and then the liquids burst. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then yep. the dog, his dogs came and licked it up. <laughs> That's disgusting.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was well deserved for, for that man. I think. Yes, a well deserved way of going out. So the houses we're talking about, in case you can't be bothered going back and listening to the first two. <laughs> Uh, just in summary, basically the houses that you see in Downton Abbey and Pride and the Prejudice, these huge, vast estates, these enormous palaces that were the seats of the aristocrats in England, in the UK.
0: Yeah. And they, they serve a purpose now for tourists to go and visit.
1: Well, yeah, they do. I mean, there are some that are still still being lived in by the, the families that have you know, lived there for hundreds of years. Uh, case in point, Highclere Castle, which is the Carnarvon family. I believe that's the castle that's used in Downton Abbey. They still reside there, but those houses are not sustainable in the modern world. So uh, they open them up for tourism, and they sort of live in a portion of the house, and then the rest is open for tourism and and you know functions and events and and you know TV shows and all that sort of stuff. A lot of them are actually with the National Trust in England now, so they're part of the historical legacy of England, so they're kept open by the National Trust for tourists to visit. Well, my parents can go and visit for free because they've got membership. Oh, wow. I mean, that's the way to go.
0: (laughs) I was thinking of The Gentleman, the film that was released fairly recently as of this recording and how they focused on some people who had these great English country houses and they were in pretty much turmoil. They they were struggling financially because things were falling apart and they had to fix them up. This episode comes with a free worksheet over on the website, the britishenglishpodcast.com So grab that and you can listen along whilst using it.
1: Dives into the whole reason that this lifestyle ended. I mean, these houses were basically run by a small army of servants. And they were huge, vast, sprawling complexes, and they had to be self-sufficient. They had endless rooms. they had you know dozens of bedrooms, loads of reception rooms, servants' quarters, laundries, kitchens, cellars, basements, guest rooms, stables, carriage houses. I, I mean, they had everything it's you a know
0: long, a long list.
1: yeah, and I mean, can you imagine they had you know all the water pipes, the the roofing, they had to have their chimneys swept, all the windows, the gutters. All of this stuff, even the gardens outside, there's a whole team of servants outside to upkeep the, the grounds. And so all of this is not possible really to, to upkeep in the modern day, but it was able to be done with a small army of servants back then, basically because the landowners made a lot of money. Uh, these are the people who own the houses and the, the staff were employed on shockingly low wages. And how did they make loads of money? So basically they owned all of the land, they'd inherited it, had been passed down from generation to generation. And if you want to know the history of that, go back to the first one of these podcasts. But they owned all the land and basically they rented out the land to their tenants. So farmers, shopkeepers, you, know, you name it. Anybody who lives there and works there would pay the local lord essentially rent and tax. Now, that's how these uh, landowners made so much money. It was almost passive income. It was passive income.
0: Right. And were these all in the country or were some of them like in a city kind of setting?
1: These were, I mean, for the most part, 99% of them, I suppose, would have been in the country. I mean, actually, often these country houses would have a city counterpart, a townhouse in the city. You can see that today in places like Kensington and so forth and Mayfair. And what are the ones on the Monopoly board? You know, the blue squares. You, you've
0: said Mayfair is a big one.
1: Yeah. So those sort of, there's one that sounds, I can't remember the name of it. Park Bel, Lane? Bel, Belgravia. Belgravia? Yeah. Park Lane, Belgravia, all those areas in London. You'll see those big old terraces that have four levels. You know, when they traveled, they would bring a, a small amount of servants with them and the servants would have their quarters and kitchens and they would still host host dinners and things like that. Actually, that's where a lot of these uh, landowners retreated to when they sold their properties eventually. Ah Yeah, a lot of them got demolished.
0: I wonder what they do you know what they did after that? You know, they went into the factories and started working with the their servants? No,
1: no, I don't I don't think so. I think a lot of them, you know, either just kept them what remaining money they had and sort of invested it in stocks and things like that. But um we can get into that.
0: Perfect. Yeah.
1: Let's okay. uh, let's get into some the reasons for the decline of this lifestyle. Nice. Okay. So what was the
0: the primary reason that you think would be worth starting
1: with? Well, it's actually a bit of a double whammy here. So it's twofold. Firstly, the landowners, they started losing their source of income. And I'll go into why that is in a minute. So they stopped making the money that they used to make. And on top of that, the wages for the servants became unaffordable, where previously they'd been paying them scandalously low wages you know and they would be working 16 to 18 hours they would be getting basically almost slave labor you know it was a almost a tokenistic amount of money they paid them right, right. but um, they were given
0: accommodation and probably terrible food but at least food
1: yeah but uh, basically the wages and lifestyle for these servants you would never get away with that today and so those wages and expectations on hours increased at the same time as the landowners began to lose their sources of income. Uh, And we can go into why both of these things happened. It was a double whammy. Yeah, okay. The prices for the servants went up. Yep. So basically, to run these houses required a small army of servants, basically. If their wages go up, the cost of running the house goes up. Now imagine on top of that, you also start to lose your source of income. So prices go up and you're earning less money. It's a double there. It's a double financial blow. Yeah,
0: that's not good news by any means.
1: (laughs) No, I guess, you know, you can't make all this free money forever, can you? No.
0: (laughs) Hard to feel sympathy for them. Yeah, I think they had a good
1: run. Yeah. They had a good run. (laughs) So firstly, I'll go into why they started to lose their source of income. Why had this system that had been around for hundreds of years, why did this suddenly disintegrate? Sounds good. Basically, there's a couple of reasons for this. Firstly, we saw the Great Depression of British agriculture. Now, this was between the years 1873 and 1896. Now, this was a depression in Britain that occurred due to the dramatic fall in grain prices, due to the opening up of the American prairies to cultivation and homesteads in 1862. Now- The reason I say 1862 specifically is because during the American Civil War, which was 1861 to 1865, the Northerners opened up these prairies with the American Prairies Bill which basically meant that the government gave away plots of land to farmers. Now this- In America. In America, all across the Midwest, spread it right across to the West.
0: Yeah. So that is the prairie lands, right?
1: Yeah. Like the, um, Through the what's now the Midwest. Yeah, the Midwest. Yeah. And so they did this in order to counteract the market force that had propped up America to this point, which was the slave owning properties in the South. So you've got to remember, politically in America at this time, contextually, they were having a, the American Civil War.
0: With, with the British Empire? No, no, no.
1: No, the American Civil War was between the North and the South, and it was to do with slavery. But the North was the British colonization. You're thinking of the, the American uh, War of Independence. Oh, yeah, I am. Yeah, that was much earlier. So then- That was when America separated from Britain. They gained independence. What? Do you know when? It was april nineteenth seventeen seventy five to september third seventeen eighty three but that is nothing to do with the American Civil war, so right ah. as interesting as that little piece of information is let's let's not muddy the waters with no, that. but l- let me just try kind of
0: summarize from my own brain i I'm imagining people go over to America from a, like europe England Amsterdam area mm-hmm. they settle up, they figure out how to live on the coast. On the East Coast. Yeah. And then they start to move in to the Midwest. And then they have slaves come over, right? At this same time?
1: This uh, much earlier on, yeah. So America, basically, the market forces of America before the Civil War were basically that the big plantation owners were the ones, the owners were the ones cultivating all of the crops that America sold. And they were doing it on the back of slave labor. So right. then the American Civil War occurred.
0: Ha- hang on. So they go over, they settle, then they bring slaves over to make it profitable for them, yeah. obviously in terrible conditions for the slaves, Yeah, hence the word. Yeah, yeah. And then they fight the Brits and then they create independence and then they develop even further into the prairie lands and then they are able to overtake the profit margins in England, Right.
1: No. So basically, all of that stuff before the American Civil War, which was 1861 to 65, to simplify it, let's just say America had its agricultural backbone based on slave labor. So then in 1861, the American Civil War started where the North fought to end slavery in the South. But they had to have a system of replacing their industry. So the market forces required them to continue to produce crops. So what they did was they actually, the North gave away millions of acres of land in the American Midwest to anyone who wanted to become a farmer so that they had an alternative industry to slave labor. Ah. Now, the consequence of this, the reason I tell you about this is because that spreading of, of new homesteads and in conjunction with a few other things, such as the advent of cheaper transportation, like the steamship, the combine harvester. Things like this, uh, because of the Industrial Revolution, made it very cheap to export American grain. And so this very cheap American grain flooded the British market. The farmers who had traditionally, in England, who had traditionally made all of the money for the landowners were suddenly going broke and couldn't pay the landowners anything. And they they left their farms and fled to the cities to start working in the factories.
0: Yeah, and it was a nicer life, well, not... Great, but it was better than what the people well, in the houses could offer them. Given a bit more freedom
1: in their lives? Well, first of all, let's not confuse the tenants of the farm owners. They're not the people in the house. So the farmers are, and the tenants on the landowners land, that's where these big landowners derive their income. Suddenly they were all fleeing to the cities because...
0: Oh, the, okay. yeah, and,
1: and so the landowners were no longer getting rent. So that's why they started to lose their all their money.
0: Did you know that we have a 45 minute long audiobook that also comes with an ebook to read along with, teaching you 10 of the most useful idioms that you can use to sound like a native level speaker? You know, the next time that you want to impress someone, be it for a job interview or an English exam, like the IELTS test, then you can whip out one of these phrases and really wow them. We've selected these 10 because they're daily idioms. They're ones that you can use in many, many situations. So you won't be wasting your time learning a random idiom that you'll never really get the chance to use. And the even better news is that we're giving this audiobook and ebook away for free. And all you need to do is find it in the show notes of this episode, head over to the thebritishenglishpodcast.com and find it in the homepage, or just like the free worksheet for this episode, Go to com forward slash freebies. That is F-R-E-E-B-I-E-S. And they were going to the cities to do what? The farmers.
1: Yeah. To so basically the industrial revolution had created a lot of factories and businesses in the cities with better hours and better working conditions and better pay. So they couldn't make money uh, on their farms anymore. So they fled to the city.
0: So, would that be the servants and the farm owners ending up working in factories in the cities?
1: Yeah, eventually the servants went as well.
0: But I imagine those that are, they have a farm that they pay rent on, mm-hmm. wouldn't they go to a job that is more trad- what we call white collar?
1: Yeah, that's right. The great British uh, agricultural depression, they couldn't make money anymore because of this American grain flooding the market. So they packed up their things and they went to the city where they could earn money in these factories. Now, this is the primary reason that uh, the landowners stopped making money. So all of their sources of income had come from these tenants and all the tenants had gone. The other reason rather was that the wages just became too expensive and there was no staff to work in the properties anymore.
0: And when you say too expensive, it's because the servants could get better pay that's, elsewhere?
1: That's correct. Right. The Industrial Revolution, although that started in the 1750s, it was a slow build. And so the rise of uh, industry and factories saw people move to the cities and choose to live there and work for better hours and better wages, especially with the rise of unions. Now, World War I is important in this. So in during World War 1 which was obviously 1914 to 1918 what we saw was the huge upscaling of factories for the war for oh. the war effort so we saw the massive ammunition factories creating transport vehicles food packages everything clothing everything you could think of in these massive war efforts so the factories are going 24/7 and yeah. they needed people to work in these factories and they were willing to pay and they've got such an incentive to do it as soon as possible That's right and so you've got a whole bunch of young male servants going off to the war as well oh, to fight on the front line. So you had an entire generation rush off to this war because at the time, we don't think of war like this, but at the time, it was marketed as the great adventure. Huh? People didn't think that they were going to go and die in trenches. They thought they were going to go off and fight off the, uh, the Germans. And um, it wasn't what they thought it was going to be, but it was advertised to every young man around the world in the Western world, at least, as this great adventure. Go see the the world and be back for tea time. And so they all left and they thought, oh, I can get paid to go and visit all of these interesting countries on the continent. For many people at this time, that would be the furthest they would ever travel in their lives and they could have never dreamed of leaving their small village. So almost...
0: Almost like how the adverts are on the TV for join the army.
1: Like you can have a great life adventuring all four corners of the world. Exactly. We still have that today, don't we? But we know today the horrors of war. But back then they didn't know. And don't forget they'd been fighting the British up to this point and and Europeans had largely been fighting colonial wars, which were basically yeah they'd go to Africa with a bunch of guns and mow down a a tribe that was throwing fruit at them, (laughs) you know. It was not a difficult war style of warfare. They, you know, it was very different to what they experienced in World War One. You had this huge, this whole generation sign up and also go and get killed, uh, and then you also had uh, everybody else working. Maybe more of the older uh, men and women working in the factories. Now, the other part of this was right. That was firstly a massive drain on the ability to actually find the staff, but secondly, during the war, the unions became very powerful because they knew they stopped work for a day, that risks the war effort, you know?
0: Oh, I see. So small groups of people in the factory start to gather together and rally up against mm-hmm. the, the man. Yes. And they say, right, we're going to create what we call a
1: union. Well, the unions already existed, but this really strengthened the unions because the unions had the power to pull the plug at any moment. So they were able to get much better wages, better hours, and it really revolutionised the working day. I really want to ask, when when did unions start? I would say the late 1800s, early 1900s. Right. But it was certainly World War I that really strengthened them. One of the things with the unions was that, like I said, they basically brought the hours down and the wages up. Previously in these houses, these staff were working sometimes 16, 18-hour days for absolute pittance in really terrible conditions. And, you know, they were never given holidays. They were... They were never given, like, really given sick leave. They they didn't have any of these benefits. It was a combination of those, all those factors that meant that these properties had no money left, and the cost to actually run them skyrocketed because running them was essentially hiring servants, and they couldn't hire them, and the wages were too high, and they were making they weren't making money anymore off their off their tenants. Really, it saw the beginning of the end of this lifestyle.
0: Is this the beginning of the end
1: of like the agricultural scene or industry in England? For a long time, yes. Uh, I don't have those stats in front of me, but I can tell you this. Between 1809 and 1879, 88% of British millionaires had been landowners. And between 1880 and 1914, this figure dropped to 33%. So that really shows you what an impact these factors had, especially the British agricultural depression. Absolutely. The new wealthy elite were no longer British aristocrats, aristocrats, third time. <laughs> Is but, it
0: an Aussie way of saying it?
1: No, it's an American way, I think, and uh, I it's just too much American TV. You like uh, the, the word literature, don't oh, you? Literature. Al- al- aluminum. Aluminum. <laughs> the new wealthy elite weren't British aristocrats anymore, but American businessmen such as, you know, Henry Ford, John D Rockefeller etc and they'd made all their money off industry rather than land in so come the
0: capitalists
1: yeah exactly and by the late 19th century British manufacturers eclipsed the aristocracy as the richest class in the nation yeah
0: is there anything other than like tourists coming to see it which is way off into 21st century can they do anything with those those lands could they Think of another way of utilising them? Yeah. Basically,
1: a lot of those houses got sold off. I mean, it really, many houses were demolished, actually, in the 40s and 50s. Some of these great, sprawling estates, amazing houses were all, you know, were razed to the ground in the 40s and 50s. Many, many, many of them. But some of them, which we still have today, were either still lived in, and it may be a hybrid situation. I think a hybrid situation for most of them that still have people living in them was fashioned. So what I mean by that is that the owners of the property, um, these families, would live in a portion of the house and then they would rent out the rest of the rooms for functions or might make it into a hotel or, uh, you know, for movies. or they, they work out ways of utilizing that space and making money out of it.
0: Right. Okay. I did actually see that they were claimed during the war as well and the lots of army, not just the British army, but Americans would come over and they would stay in some of these country houses as shelter and they would abuse the homes. And there was one situation, extreme mistreatment, which was very strange. The owner was told to leave the premises and a whole fleet came in and took over or just you know sheltered there for quite a while and then the owner came back and uh, what he had done or they had done was board up all of the paintings that were worth thousands and thousands of pounds in hope that they would just you know caught as a bit of mess but not loads and they came back and they pulled the the boards back and they were really relieved to see that the paintings seemed to be intact until they took a a little closer look at the eyeballs and all of the eyeballs were missing. Really? And so for some reason, some person had taken down these boards and snipped out <laughs> oh, the eyeballs of what, every
1: painting. What, what a weird perverted thing to do. And the
0: weirdest thing was apparently on, like probably about 40 years later, the current owner on that in that day uh, of the estate received a letter containing about 300 eyeballs and it seemed that the person who had done it on his deathbed in america felt so bad that
1: he sent them all back
0: what a, to this country house
1: that is so strange <laughs> oh my god sort of a maniac goes around doing that <laughs> That's, well, a, that's an interesting story. but Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I did hear there was some acquirement of these houses. I think in wartime, the government gets special powers where they can acquire certain things. Yeah, and
0: it sounds like eyeballs as well. So that's the end of part one, but uh, we can talk more about all of this in part two and three. What have we got to come, Ben?
1: Well, next I think we'll uh, talk about the final death knell for this sort of uh, lifestyle in these houses. Like What was the monumental event that really just shot this whole thing down? And um, I'll also tell you a little bit about some of the the smarter investors. Oh,
0: yes. And then in part three, maybe we could give them a few places to go and visit if they're in England and visiting a great country house.
1: Well, that does sound like a great idea for something that you might be able to do on British English podcast for all of your
0: (laughs) listeners. Perfect. Okay. So we'll say goodbye to part one listeners. Thank you very much, guys. And thank you, Ben. No worries. Goodbye. All right. See you in part two. We will leave it there for part one of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening up to this point. If you did want to listen to part two and part three of this conversation, then you can head over to the com and check out the premium podcast or academy memberships. The premium podcast gives you access to the full conversation along with extended glossaries, transcripts and flashcards. Whereas the Academy gives you all of that, plus exclusive videos and audios for the season-based episodes, explaining the vocabulary, exampling them, giving you quizzes, writing assignments and weekly speaking classes on Zoom. But if you were just here for part one of this conversation, then I thank you very much for stopping by. I hope you enjoyed the show. Do grab that free worksheet by clicking the link in the show notes. My name's Charlie, and I will see you next week on the British English Podcast.